0: This podcast is a ministry of Crossroads Community Church in Hatfield, Pennsylvania. And now, the message. Good to see you all here this morning. Uh, For those of you who don't know, my name is Dave Armstrong. A member here, I'm a part of the men's planning team that help leads up our ministry to men here at Crossroads. In addition to that, I am also an area director with a ministry called Man in the Mirror. It's a national ministry, been around for over 30 years, headquartered in Florida. And uh, that ministry uh, uh, has ministered to thousands of churches over the last 30 years. There we go. Appreciate that. And uh, Crossroads, you are so generous in helping to support the work that I do. As a part of the church budget, there are also many of you who individually give to support the ministry. I want to take just a couple of moments before we launch into the scriptures to give you a bit of an update about the ministry and what's been going on as of late. The vision of Man in the Mirror is to help every church to disciple every man, and we believe that's critically important because we have a whole lot of men today who do not know what it really means to be a man. We've got a whole generation of young people, many of them have grown up without a father figure in the home. They really don't know what that means to be a man. Uh, In addition to that, we see all sorts of uh, problems in our society today that we can trace back to the failure of a man. Uh, We have 73 million men in America who have never made a profession of faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, Something about 93% of the prison population is male. 85% of those men did not have a father figure growing up in their home. Uh, We're going to have, uh, in our average church today, half of the men are going to have a major problem with pornography. Four out of ten of those men are going to get a divorce, impacting the lives of a million kids a year. And only one out of every ten men in the average church lives according to a biblical worldview. So Houston, we have a problem. And the solution to that problem is what Jesus told us 2,000 years ago when he said, go into all the world and make disciples of every nation. And so that is the vision of man in the mirror, to help every church to disciple every man. And God's given me the privilege of being an area director for what we call the Greater Philadelphia North Coalition for Men's Discipleship. It's uh, basically Upper Bucks, Upper Montgomery County, a little bit of Lehigh, a little bit of Berks uh, County thrown in there for good measure, a thousand churches in that area. And uh, it's my responsibility to develop relationships with those churches and to walk alongside them in the process of helping them develop an intentional strategy, a sustainable plan to disciple men. Uh, Most churches just end up kind of throwing events and activities at guys. They'll get men together once a month, eat some pancakes. They might have a couple of Bible studies floating around, a yearly retreat, and they slap the label men's ministry on that. But so many times there's no intentionality behind that, no intentional desire to really want to help those men become fully devoted followers, disciples of Jesus. And so we help them to do that through a model that we have developed that we call No Man Left Behind. It's a model that contains effective ministry principles for discipling men, the the goal of which is to create an environment in a local church where life on life, discipleship of men takes place. So it's been an exciting year this year. In January, I went full-time with Man in the Mirror. Uh, In April, we had a No Man Left Behind training event for pastors, men's leaders, men's leadership teams. Over in Pottstown, we had 88 men from 23 churches that were represented. We spent a day and a half training them in the principles of No Man Left Behind. 17 of those churches were either in my area or close enough to that I could actually be on site to help them. And I've been following up with eight or nine of those churches very intentionally over the course of the summer. Several of those are now at the point where they are ready or just about ready to launch a ministry to men in their church. In addition to that, at the end of June, we had a pastor's breakfast, and we had 35 pastors and key leaders from 21 different churches that were in attendance at that breakfast, the goal of which was really just to introduce more pastors to the ministry of Man in the Mirror and what it is that we do. 17 of those churches uh, had no previous experience with Man in the Mirror or knew little or nothing about us, and every one of those, with the exception of one or two, wanted to know more. And I've also been busy following them up this summer. So in the course of the four months from May to August, I've, uh, I've been on site at 20, 25 different churches, 54 different meetings with them. Some of those churches obviously multiple times. So it's been a great summer, a busy summer, and we're just seeing uh, the interest in men's discipleship in local churches grow and develop, and uh, we continue to see that uh, as time moves on. So we're excited about that. God's opened up doors of ministry to be able to, to share the word of God with churches uh, through Man in the Mirror. Uh, I spoke at two different churches last month. I've got three churches this month. Saturday, I'm down in Northern Maryland to a men's conference. I'll be one of the speakers there. Uh, so God's been good. And uh, next month, we're doing two special events with Man in the Mirror, uh, two men's seminars Uh, The first of those is on Saturday, October the 8th. It's going to be in Lansdale at the Emanuel Church of the Nazarene, and the event is called Rewired. Uh, You've heard the expression, fake it until you make it, and that's really the motto by which a lot of men live, especially when it comes to their spiritual life. And so this seminar is designed to help move a man from performance to passion from simply behavior modification, living according to the expectations of others, to really having a passionate faith in God, a passionate love for Him. That's, that's Saturday, October the 8th. And then on the 22nd of October, uh, in Pottstown at the Berean Bible Church, uh, we're doing a Dads That Make the Difference seminar. Uh, again, an all-day Saturday seminar for guys. And uh, every single one of us who is a dad here would, would say in a moment we would be willing, if necessary, to die for our kids. This seminar teaches you how to live for them. And it's all about grace-based parenting. And we're praying and working to getting 100 guys at each, at least 100 guys at each of these seminars. Um, They are Saturdays, eight to about three. Uh, We've had awesome success with these. Man in the Mirror has done hundreds of these across the country over the years. Uh, We'll get two-thirds of the men who attend who will commit to a follow-up four- or six-week discussion group, giving a man a right next step in his walk with God. And then, in addition to that, we'll see a third of the guys generally that will make a commitment or a rededication of their life to Christ. And there's always a handful of guys that will make first-time commitments to Jesus. If you think about it, we'd certainly encourage you to pray uh, for those two events coming up. Um, We hope to see some significant things happen. So all of that being said, uh, I went full-time in January. It does not mean I'm fully supported, however, and we're still in the process of raising some funds. We really want to put the ministry on a very stable foundation, be able to do more things and have a sustainable ministry, so I'm still in the process of raising support. Uh, I'm looking for another $3,000 a month. May sound rather, you know, like a lot, but if you break it down, uh, if 100 people would be willing to give $30 a month, that's like a dollar a day, that's less than a cup of coffee, a dollar a day for men's discipleship. I could be fully funded, and the ministry would be moving along uh, in awesome fashion. So I appreciate all that have supported. If you're interested in wanting to know more about this ministry and how you can be a part of it, uh, I've got some information on a table out there uh, that has some of these giving forms. i would be glad to talk to you some more detail about that and what all is involved. Uh, maybe some of you that are already support would be willing to say, hey, I will pick up another $30 or whatever it might be. That would be awesome as well. And again, I'll be glad to talk to you out there. There's some resources out there. Please uh, feel free to check out that little table for some of the resources we have. i got a f- few of the books, Man in the Mirror. Uh, guys, if you haven't read the book, feel free to take a copy along with you. Uh, my gift to you. Uh, also, there's a sign-up sheet if you're not presently on my mailing list. I do like a monthly or close to monthly, uh, email newsletter. And I'd be glad to put you on that list. If you give me your mailing address, there's one or two times a year that we'll send it out snail mail and be glad to do that for you as well. So, all right, there's the commercial. We're gonna jump into the word of God at this time. If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to turn with me to Genesis, the second chapter, second and third chapter, actually. Genesis chapter two, chapter three. And if you don't have a Bible, there should be one under the the chair rack there in front of you. Easy to find the book of Genesis. If you open the Bible to the very first few pages, you'll find Genesis, his very first book. Uh, And we're going to read this morning just to give a sense of the context of where we're going. Genesis chapter 2, verse 25, down to Genesis 3 and verse 10. I'll be reading out of the New International Version. And it reads something like this. And the man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees of the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. And this is really our text, verses 8 through 10. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? And he answered, I heard you in the garden. And I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Let's look to the Lord. Father, as we turn our attention to your word this morning, I pray, Lord, that you would speak to us. Uh, Lord, your word is life. Your word is power. Uh, Your word is what we need from day to day as we seek to live our lives for you. And Father, may your Holy Spirit just quiet our hearts, speak to us, guide and direct my words, my thoughts this morning, and we'll give you the thanks and praise in Jesus' name. Amen. So the title of the message this morning is, Where Are You?, and it really comes out of that verse, the the ninth verse of the third chapter of Genesis, and the Lord God called to the man, Where Are You?, now that's the first recorded question that God ever asks a member of the human race, Where Are You?, and it's a question that I believe God still asks us today, for this is not just simply the story of Adam and Eve. Not simply the historical account of that first man, that first woman, but more than that, we see ourselves in them. Their story, to great measure, is our story. And and as we hear the words of that story, as we just read it a few moments ago, we can think and say, that's me. I I know what it's like to be tempted. I know what it's like to give in, to fall into temptation, I know what it's like to struggle with sin. I know what it's like to feel the shame of sin, to hide myself from God and from others because of my sin. Their story is in great measure our story. We see ourselves in them. And that question, where are you? So the big idea that I want to share with you this morning is this. Knowing where you are at is the beginning of moving to where God wants you to be. Knowing where you are at is the beginning of moving to where God wants you to be. We are all on a journey. Matter of fact, the crossroads, our vision statement is helping people on their journey to knowing and following Jesus. And we are all on a journey, a spiritual journey. And we're somewhere in that journey. But knowing where we're at is the beginning of moving to where God wants us to be. So we're going to take a look at this question, where are you? And as we do that... Wrong button. As we do that, we're going to look at this question, and we're going to find that there are five kind of nuances to this question. This is a loaded question that God asks Adam and Eve. And there's some shades of meaning that we're going to look at, five of them in particular that are here, and they're represented for us uh, by the, five, or the four chairs that we see here. So if you're, you're kind of thinking, you know, well, how do we do the math with that? Five types of, you know, five... Nuances, four chairs. It'll become clear, I think, by the time that we're done. And the five nuances here, the five shades of meaning, correspond to something that we do at Man in the Mirror where we talk about five types of men. Now, we talk about five types of men because the vision of Man in the Mirror is to help every church disciple every man. If our ministry was and had a vision of helping every church to disciple every woman, we'd be talking about five types of women. If the vision of man in the mirror was about helping every church disciple, every teenager, we could be talking about five types of teenagers. The reality is whether you're a man, woman, teenager, we all, there are five types of people that are represented uh, here this morning. And we're going to take a look at each one of those. So as we go through this passage of scripture, ask yourself, where am I this morning? What chair am I sitting in? So where are you? not not talking about it obviously physically, we can all figure that out, I hope, but where are you spiritually in your walk with God? Where are you on your journey with Jesus? So let's jump into the passage of scripture as we look at this uh, question, where are you? And the first thing I want you to notice with me is that this is a question of reconciliation. This is a question of reconciliation. First and foremost, As we go into verse 8, we read this, uh, and it says like this, Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden. And that word to walk in the original language means to walk about or to walk up and down. So this isn't simply God walking through the garden as if maybe he had something to do on the other side, he had some kind of an appointment, and he's kind of walking through the garden to get there. Here he is in the garden and he's walking about it. He's walking up and down in that garden as if he were looking for something or someone. Couple that with what it said, that here the man and the woman, it says they heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking. And that word sound can also be translated voice. As a matter of fact, that's exactly how the King James Version translates it. They heard the voice of the Lord God as he was walking. They heard his voice. So what is God saying as he's walking in the garden? Well, I think verse 9 tells us what he's saying. He's asking the question, where are you? So you kind of put all those things together, and the image here is God walking in the garden, up and down, back and forth, and as he's doing it, he's calling out time and again, where are you? Where are you? Where are you? And that's a question that you ask somebody who is lost. If you were inviting someone over to your house and they would never been to your house before, maybe even never been in the area before, and you set up a time, gave them the address, and for some reason or other, they didn't have a GPS or it didn't work or they punched in the wrong information or whatever it might be, about 20 minutes after they should have been at your house, you get the phone call and says, I can't find the place, I'm lost. Well, the first question you'd undoubtedly ask them is, where are you? You know, give me some kind of a landmark, give me an address, give me a cross street, give me something, because if I know where you're at, I can help get you to where you want to be. So here's this kind of a question. And Adam and Eve, they had sinned in the garden. God had said, you can eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, eat of, I'm sorry, you can eat of any tree you want in the garden, except for the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For in the day that you eat of that fruit, you will surely die. God had given them one command, and one command only, and they broke it. And now they experience this sense of sin in their life, this sense of brokenness, this sense of separation from God, and it's identified here by the sense that they realized they were naked. Back in chapter 2, verse 25, they connect the the sense of, of nakedness with shame. And here's the sense as you roll into this passage here, there's this sense of shame that the experience, even in verse 10 of chapter 3, even in that passage of Scripture, when the man finally answers, he says this, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. Well, earlier we read that they had already taken fig leaves and sewed them together to make coverings, but here they are still after those coverings talking about a sense of nakedness. You see, this isn't a dress code issue here. This is a moral code. This isn't something that's external. It's something internal. There is a sense, a realization for the very first time, this man, this woman, that they are separated from God. And God has come walking in the garden to reconcile His lost children. Now, that reminds me of the first chair that we have up here this morning, and that's what we call the natural person. The natural person is someone who is, like all of us, sinned, but they are in a state of separation from God because of that sin. They've never put their faith and trust in Jesus. They desperately need Jesus Christ. They desperately need to be clothed with the righteousness of Christ. They are natural people. Now, every church has them, and that's an okay thing. We want to be church that's opening, welcoming to people to come in. Maybe you've been here for years, grown up in the church all of your life, you've heard the message of the gospel, but for whatever the reason it might be, you've never put your faith in Jesus. You're a natural person. Or maybe you're here this morning and, and you didn't grow up in the church, but you're attending because you're just kicking the tires of Christianity. You've heard about Jesus and you've heard people talk about Jesus and the difference he's made in their life. And you're just trying to check this out to see if there's any reality, any truth to this whole thing of the gospel. Natural person. The neat thing, if you're in that chair this morning, is that natural person is this. God takes the initiative. When Adam and Eve fell in the garden, when they sinned, God did not stand outside the garden with his arms crossed and say, boy, those guys really blow it. Well, I guess if they want to find me, here I am. They can come find me. He took the initiative going into the garden looking for his lost children. God takes the initiative. Why does he do that? Because he's a God of grace. He's a God of grace. He's a God that wants to reconcile the lost to himself, to bring them into relationship with himself. That's one of the first things we learn about God in the pages of Scripture. Chapter 1 and 2 remind us of God's power and might that He spoke and worlds came into being. But you come into chapter 3, when Adam and Eve sinned, now He's a God who seeks those who are lost. And you see it all throughout the pages of Scripture. You roll into the New Testament, into the Gospels, and here's Jesus, God the very God, second person of the Trinity, who has come to earth in human flesh... And what he says about himself in Luke 19, verse 10, says the son of man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. And he was ultimately going to do that by laying down his life on a cross, by bearing your sin and my sin on him, that if we'd open our hearts and lives to him, he would take away our sin, he would come in, he would reconcile us to himself and make us his children. So where are you this morning? Are you that natural person sitting in that first chair? If that's the case, are you ready to be reconciled to God? To open your life to Jesus Christ, to invite Him in, to forgive you of your sins, and to embrace His righteousness for you? So that's the first thing we see. This is a question of reconciliation. The second thing I want you to notice is this. This is a question of revelation, of revelation. Have you ever wondered why God asks questions in the Scripture? You find them all over the place. We find them here. Where are you? Why is God asking questions? Isn't he the all-knowing God? The God who knows everything? Everything that goes on. He sees it all. He hears it all. He knows it all. Well, the theological term that we have for that is God is omniscient. So why is he asking questions? It's like trying to play hide and seek with somebody who won't close their eyes. I've got three little grandkids. My two oldest ones live right here in Hatfield. We've got Grace, who's five. Charity, who just turned three. And they come over to the house from time to time. They were over a few weeks ago. and We have some toys there for them when they come. And we have a little toy shopping cart and some plastic food so they can play grocery store, whatever they want to do with it. And so they're over there. And Grace had all the food and everything in the cart. And she was rolling around. She said, Grandpa, I got an idea. I said, "Okay, what is it? Why don't you hide the food and we'll find it? That sounds like fun. All right, I'll do that. Close your eyes. Now, Grace is five. She understands what that is. and She does that perfectly fine. Charity has just turned three. Her concept of closing her eyes is something like this. (laughs) It's hard to play that game when you won't close your eyes. It's hard to hide from God because God never closes his eyes. He sees us. He knows it all. You see, when God asks questions, He doesn't ask them for His benefit. He already knows the answer. He asks them for our benefit. He wants us through that question to examine ourselves. He wants to reveal us to us so that we would see ourselves clearly. And that's exactly what you see in the text. Verse 9, He asks the question, where are you? In verse 10, Adam, when he spills his beans, he spills them all. And so he says this, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And that's a credibly revealing statement. If we had time, we could probably go through it all and exegete it word by word by word, which we don't have time to do. But nevertheless, it gave the opportunity for Adam to come clean, to take a good look at himself. God asked questions for our benefit to reveal us to us. And that's so important when we're trying to hide from God, when we're not being honest with him. And that reminds me of the second chair. The second chair is what we call the cultural Christian. And the cultural Christian has a foot inside the kingdom. They have made a profession of faith in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, but it hasn't gone really any further than that. We call them cultural Christians in large part because they understand the church culture. They have been around church long enough that they know what to say, what to do, how to act, what to wear, whatever it is, they got it down. The problem is there's very little going on on the inside, the cultural Christian. matter of fact, the focus of that cultural Christian is that life is really about himself, herself, and what God can do for them. God is, in essence, the spare tire. We have them all in our cars. We never see them. We never think about them until we need them. Then at that point, the spare tire becomes incredibly important. And we take it out, and we change the tire, and we ride on it for as long as we need to until we get another tire or get the one that's flat fixed. And then off it comes, on goes the other tire, back into the trunk, close the lid, and we don't think about it again until we need it. And the cultural Christian kind of lives his life that way with God. God's there, but he's the spare tire in the trunk that they don't give a whole lot of thought to until they need him. And then he comes out, does his thing, and when it's done, they want to go back into trunk. Cultural Christian. Kind of like the guy in this video. When I was 12, I accepted Christ as my Savior. I was even baptized. It undoubtedly was a very important decision. It even affected how I lived in high school. I mean, don't get me wrong, I, I had fun on the weekends. I had a girlfriend, a couple, but I was a normal high school kid. College was... One big blur. But I did make it to church out of obedience. And after school, I married a great girl. And she's been a great influence on me. Life's been good. I have a house, three kids. I couldn't ask for more. I mean, sure, I'll worry about my future. I mean, my marriage, it could be better. And I need to spend more time with my kids, but... Things will be all right. I have my faith. You may not hear me talk about it a lot, but it's just because it's personal. But don't worry for me. My Jesus is real. When you listen to Ryan, everything sounds good. You'd think, here's a fine, upstanding, young Christian man. But on the inside, all sorts of stuff going on in Ryan's life. All sorts of stuff going on in Ryan's life. See, some people hide in plain sight. Others of them do a little more than just hide in plain sight. They can can serve in the church. They can be doing all sorts of, you know, kind of Christian stuff. Still be cultural Christians. Some of them take a further step back from that. Because that word, to hide, that we find in the scripture here for Adam, is mean, it means to withdraw or to draw back. And some do that. Uh, that's why for some people it's kind of hard to get to know them in church, you, particularly when you want to talk about spiritual things. They like kind of keeping you at an arm's length. They deflect whenever you want to talk about spiritual things. And, and then some withdraw altogether, and you just don't see them at church because they're not even here. The cultural Christian. Well, the reality is this, we can hide from others, we can put on the good show, but we can't hide from God. He sees through the masks, he sees through the fronts, he sees through the walls that we put up, and he wants to reveal you to you because he wants something better for you than what you're experiencing. You see, Jesus put it this way in John chapter 10, verse 10, I am come that they might have life. And for the cultural Christians, it's pretty well stop there. But the rest of the verse, Jesus goes on to say, and that you might have it more abundantly, more abundantly. And that's what Jesus wants for that cultural Christian. He wants you to experience the abundant life of what it means to walk with Christ. And you experience that through discipleship. As you follow Jesus as a disciple. So where are you this morning? Where are you? Are you in that second chair? Are you that cultural Christian going through the motions? If so, are you ready to get serious with God? Are you ready to be a follower of His? Well, this is a question of reconciliation, a question of revelation. Notice with me, thirdly, it's a question of relationship. Where are you? In Exodus chapter 2, we read about Moses. And in Exodus chapter 2, Moses had killed an Egyptian. Pharaoh finds out about it. He's trying to track Moses down uh, to kill him. Moses flees, goes into a place called Midian in the middle of nowhere, sits down by a well where shepherds come to water their flock. And while he's there, there's a bunch of shepherds around. And lo, and behold, here comes these seven sisters with their father's flock, and they want to come water their sheep. But the shepherds who are there give them a hard time. And Moses steps in because, you see, Moses is the deliverer. He is the, that's in his DNA. He's going to deliver a whole nation of Israel out of Egypt in about 40 years. And he kind of rescues these ladies, moves the stone from the well, waters their flocks, and the ladies take their sheep back home, and they excitedly tell their father what happened that day. And their father asks the question, the very same question that God asks Adam and Eve, where is he? In other words, the expectation is that you would have shown some hospitality to this man. You would have brought him home. I want to meet this guy. I want to see him. I want to hear him. I want to get to know him. Because if he is as good as you say he is, I have just found one of you a husband. (laughs) And that's exactly what happens in the next verse. Zipporah becomes the husband of Moses. But the expectation there was that Moses would be there. Where is he? And when God asks the question in our text, where are you? The expectation is that they would have been there. And you get the sense that this wasn't the first time God had appeared in the garden. That most likely he had been there time and time again for the very purpose of developing, engaging in a relationship with Adam and Eve. That's why it's a question of relationship. And it reminds me of this third chair that we have here this morning. And that's the biblical disciple. The biblical disciple has a growing, deepening, developing relationship with God. And one of the things among many that may characterize the biblical disciple is this. He spends time with God in the word and in prayer. Now, he does it not because he has to. Not because he realizes it's a thing that he should do. He does it because he wants to. And there's a difference between spending time with God in the Word and prayer and spending time in the Word and prayer. You can go days, weeks, months, years spending time in the Word and in prayer and never spend time with God. It just becomes a thing to do, the checklist. Read my Bible today, said my prayers, check it off, on we go. But the biblical disciple wants to be with God. And as they come to the Word of God, their attitude is much more like this. Lord, I want to listen to your Word that I might hear your voice. Lord, I want to spend time with you. I want to get to know you better. That's why I come in your, to the, you be in the Word and in the prayer this morning. That's the biblical disciple. Notice what it says here in verse 8, that the Lord God was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Now, I don't think God just throws things into Scripture just to fill things up. There's plenty in this book already. He doesn't have to do that. Everything has significance and importance. He wasn't just telling Moses, who, who was the inspired author of the book of Genesis, hey, put down a weather report for the day. would I want him to know it was cool that day. It wasn't just, hey, I want to know what time of day it was when all this took place. There's something significant about that. Literally, the cool of the day, literally in the original language means the breath of the day. Breath of the day. And it could be a reference either to, uh, and some would translate it a reference to the evening, when the sun goes down and and things begin to cool off, cool of the day. Or most translators translate it some sense in terms of the morning, the early morning. The sun has not quite maybe come up yet, but it's light. It's like the coolest part of the day just before things begin to heat up. As a matter of fact, in the Song of Solomon, chapter 2, that's exactly what you have referenced here. Here's this Song of Solomon, two lovers. Listen to what it says. My lover is mine and I am his. He browses among the lilies until the day breaks. And that expression, day breaks, is the exact same expression translated cool of the day in Genesis chapter 3. The breath of the day. Until the day breaks and the shadows flee, turn, my lover, be like a gazelle or like a young stag on the rugged hills. In other words, here are these two people. They love each other. They're not married yet. They cannot wait for the sun to come up because they want to spend more time together. And that's some sense of that biblical disciple. He he desires to spend time with God. He starts maybe his day with God. It's a refreshing time of the day. And if you've, some of you are morning people, and maybe you've gotten out at that cool of the day, the sun hasn't quite come up yet, and you're experiencing the coolness and the breath. Might have been a hot day, might have been a warm evening, but a lot of times, there's some exceptions this summer, but you come out and it's just cool. And it's just refreshing. And for the biblical disciples, spending time with God in the Word and the Prayer does the exact same thing. It's refreshing. David puts it this way in Psalm 23. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the quiet waters. He restores my soul, refreshes me. In addition to that, you see, this disciple, this biblical disciple, not only will start his day with God, but this one, this person walks with God. Walks with God. I mean, here's God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And it's as if he's saying, Adam and Eve, come walk with me. Let's look at my creation. Let's look at what I've made. Let's look at what I've done. Let's talk together as we walk along the way. Walk with me. And that's an expression that you see given in Scripture. A couple of chapters over in chapter 6, reading about Noah, it says, Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked with God. That's the biblical disciple. So where are you this morning? Are you walking with God? Is your life marked by time that you spend in the Word of God and in prayer, and that you not just simply spend that little time, but you really spend your day with God? You're aware of His presence. You're shooting up prayers and asking for God's help or prayers of thankfulness. You're in just communion with God throughout the day. That's the biblical disciple. If that's where you're at, I would encourage you stay there. I mean, keep on keeping on what you're doing. Matter of fact, I will, I will challenge you to take one step further. Guys, find some other men who share that same desire and get together and study God's word together. We've got three equipping man in the mirror groups that meet every week, Monday night, Wednesday morning, Saturday morning. We've got about 20 guys involved in those. I would encourage you, try a group like that. And if that doesn't work for you, find another group. Ladies, I would encourage you to find some other ladies who share the same kind of desires and study the word of God together. Learn from one another. Or if not that, hey, we've got some life groups. Join a life group where you can study the word of God together, grow together in the things of God. So where are you this morning? If you're not in that chair and you're somewhere else, God is ready to meet you where you're at and walk with you to where he wants you to be. Well, there's a fourth thing I want you to see here. and This is a question of Responsibility. Whoops, I think we did that one. Sorry. Here we are. Question of responsibility. Question of responsibility. Notice what it says in verse 9. But the Lord God called to the man. Where are you? Did you catch that? He doesn't call to Adam and Eve, or he doesn't simply call to Eve. He calls to the man, to Adam. And it's Adam who responds in verse 10. And he said. Why is God seemingly singling out Adam in this question? And I think the reason for that is this. He's wanting to hold Adam responsible for the mess that he and Eve just made in the garden. Adam, where are you? You see, every time the two of them are mentioned in Scripture, up to this point, virtually every time, it's the man and then the woman. Created the man first, then the woman. You read through the text. You know it's the man and his wife. The man and his wife. But the exception of that comes in verse six, and it says, and it says this in verse six: When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gathering or gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And here it's reversed. It's the woman and the man. Where's Adam in all of this? Right there. But silent. Right there, but passive. He doesn't speak up. He doesn't say, Eve, we can't do this. Remember what God told us? We're not supposed to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Doesn't do that. He's silent. He had failed to take the lead. You see, in marriage... In marriage, and that's the context here, Adam and Eve now married, in marriage, the husband is to be the spiritual leader of the family. That's what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5. Husband is to be the head of the wife, just as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the savior of the body. And he goes on to describe that leadership as a loving leadership, a servant leadership, where he is living out a Christ-like life and is leading his family, his wife and his children in the same direction, a leader. But Adam failed in that role of the leader. And that reminds me of this fourth chair, a chair that we call the servant leader. Now, the servant leader reminds me of that, not because of Adam's failure, but because of Adam's responsibility. Adam was to be the servant leader. And the servant leader has all the same stuff that the biblical disciple has going on, except that he or she is far enough along in their spiritual journey so that they're willing to help somebody else on theirs. That their view is not just upward, but also outward. So they're willing to come alongside this natural person and befriend them and get to know them so they can share the gospel with them and lead them to Christ. Or they're willing to come alongside this cultural Christian and befriend them and get to know them and develop a relationship with them so he can begin to encourage him and challenge him to become a disciple. Or he walks alongside this biblical disciple to encourage him or her to continue on and to be someone who also comes and helps somebody else and moves them to this chair, the servant leader. So where are you this morning? Are you a servant leader? If so, who are you leading? Who are you helping along in their journey to know and to follow Jesus Christ? Where are you? Now, God calls out Adam. And so men, I want to call us men out just for a minute. All right. Let me just speak to you guys for a moment. Men, you and I have the primary responsibility to lead our families. That's what God's going to hold us responsible for, to be the leader. We need to be like Joshua, who said, Choose you this day whom you will serve, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That's leadership. Guys, if your wife is the spiritual leadership in your home, That's on you, men. They're simply filling a void that you've left. Because I've been around a while. I've pastored for 18 years, grown up in the church most of my life, rubbed shoulders with a lot of churches now. I've never met a woman who understands the biblical roles as provided in Scripture for a husband and wife who doesn't want, long for, pray for, desire that her husband is a spiritual leader in their family that he's really living out his faith at home and leading the family. And, and if a woman has that kind of a man, she's one contented woman. That's our responsibility, guys, to step up and be that kind of a leader. Because if you wanna be a, a spiritual leader in the church, men, it starts by being that one at home. That's where it begins. And wherever discipleship takes off in a church, whether it's men's discipleship, women's disciples, it doesn't matter. It's because there are people, there are men and women in this chair who are willing not just to be disciples, but to make disciples. That's the servant leader. One final thing, and we're really done this morning. This is finally a question of reassurance, a question of reassurance. In verse 10... Adam answers and he says, This I heard you in the garden and I was afraid. Afraid. There's Adam. See, Adam had blown it big time. He had failed as a a husband, as a man, as a leader, and Adam was in crisis. For the very first time, he's sensing this thing of sin and the guilt and the shame of it all. He remembers what God said, The day that you eat thereof, you'll surely die. And and Adam has all this running through his mind. He doesn't know fully what it all means, and he's afraid. And that reminds me of the fifth type of individual we find in the church, and that's the hurting person, the hurting person. Here's an individual who's going through some kind of a crisis in their life. It might be a financial crisis. It might be a job crisis. It might be a physical crisis. It might be a relationship crisis, a marriage crisis, whatever it is, but they're going through some kind of a crisis, and they're hurting. And the reason we don't have a chair for that individual is this, is that every single one of these other four types can also be a hurting person. So the natural man can also be a hurting person. The cultural Christian or or the biblical disciple that is serving they can also be hurting people because they're going through some kind of a crisis. And here's what I know about those in crisis, especially men. They won't admit it, but just like Adam, they're afraid. They're afraid. They're afraid for the future. They don't know what it holds. They're afraid that life as they know it may be all over. If they are in crisis because of their own actions like Adam, not always the case, they're afraid of the consequences. They're afraid because they don't know what to do next. They're afraid because they're losing hope. They're afraid because some of them think that God may have abandoned them in the midst of their crisis. And God's answer for them is basically this I am right here. When they heard the voice of God in the garden, it was a reminder that God was right there in the midst of their hurt, in the midst of their pain. Adam was afraid. Now, in one sense, he had some reason to be. There were some consequences he was going to face, and they were pretty severe. But on the other hand, Adam didn't need to be afraid because God was coming also to come in mercy and grace to help this man and help this woman in their circumstances. And you and I don't need to be afraid either in our hurts. David had experienced a lot of hurt in his life. You read through the Psalms, and it's like Psalm after Psalm after Psalm. David talks about the hurt and the pain that he's experienced in his life. And he says in Psalm 23, verse 4, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil because you are with me. Even when I go through the darkest valley, you're right there. That was David's experience. And you and I have something Adam didn't have. Adam just had Eve, bless her heart. If you're married and you have a spouse who's there walking with you through through times of crisis and hurt, that's awesome. But we also have one another in the body of Christ. And that's something Adam didn't have. So men, if you're in hurt and pain and crisis, there are other men here at Crossroads that are willing to walk with you talk with you, pray with you, walk you through that crisis, encourage you. Ladies, if you're hurting, there are other women in Crossroads who are willing to come alongside you and encourage you and help you and pray for you and walk with you through that crisis. You don't have to deal with it alone. So where are you this morning? We've looked at five types of individuals. We've said this is a question of reconciliation, the natural person who needs Jesus. It's a question of revelation, the cultural Christian who's hiding from God and needs to come and be honest and let God work in their life from the inside out. We've talked about the question of relationship and here's the biblical disciple. And here's a guy who's just walking with God, developing his relationship with Christ. And then we've talked about this as a question of responsibility. Here's the servant leader who's helping others in their walk with God. And then we've talked about it as a question of reassurance. For the hurting guy, for that hurting man, hurting woman, God is right there. Where are you this morning? Wherever you are, are you willing to keep moving toward Jesus Christ in your walk with him? Are you willing to follow? Some of you might say, wait a minute, Dave, this all sounds great, but you don't know my life. You don't know what I've been through. You don't know how many times I've blown it and messed up and filed up. I am stuck in a chair, and I'm going to be stuck in that chair because I can't imagine God would ever want to take an interest in me to move me forward. And I want to tell you, there could be nothing further from the truth. That is a lie of the enemy. If you know my story, I was a pastor for 18 years. I failed morally. cost me my marriage. cost me my ministry. I spent a few years not walking with God. And yet as I look back, I can trace God's hand every step of the way, even in my failure, even in my sin, even when I was not walking with him, he was there orchestrating circumstances in my life to eventually bring me to the place where I come back to him. And when I came back to him, it wasn't, glad to have you back, sit on the sidelines, take a seat. It was, I love you, and I can still use you. And he has and he can do the same for you. The USS New York is a San Antonio class amphibious assault ship, cost a billion dollars, 25,000 tons. It's 684 feet long, 105 feet wide. It can hold 300 sailors and 700 marines. It's an awesome vehicle. But the real fascinating part about the USS New York is this. Seven and a half tons of steel are in that, this vehicle that came from the rubble of 9-11. What was our temporary defeat, we've been able to take and remake into something that's a fighting machine. God takes the rubble of our life if we'll let him. And he can turn it around for good. He works all things together for good who love him, who are called according to his purpose, and out of the rubble can make something beautiful and strong and useful to him. And he wants to do your life. He wants to do it in my life. Where are you this morning? Let's pray. We're going to sing in just a few moments. And as we do that, I hope that you've been asking yourself the question, and you found yourself somewhere in these chairs this morning. If God's been challenging you in the area of moving to a chair, to moving along in your journey with Christ, I would encourage you to do some business with him this morning. If you need to, feel free to come forward. I'll be here. I'll ask Pastor Jim to come forward. Um, We'd love to be able to talk with you, pray with you, help you. But I'm also going to ask at the end of the next song that we're going to sing, and I'm going to put my man in the mirror hat on for a moment. Because men, you and I play a key role, and because we need to be challenged to be the men that God's created us to be and to be the leaders he's created us to be, I'm going to ask every man if you're capable and willing to come forward. Not going to embarrass you, not going to make you sit in a chair, not going to do anything like that. I simply simply want to have us impress upon ourselves the importance of the role that we play. I want to say a couple words of encouragement to you, have a word of prayer with you, and then we'll let you go back to your seats for the final song. So, Father, as we come to this time, I want to thank you for the truths of your word. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would... Speak to our hearts. May we be open to what you have to say to us this morning. And Father, we want to give you the thanks and praise for your mercy and your love and your grace in our lives. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. Intro music by bensound.com Visit us online at crossroads-cc.org